This is Internet Marketing for Smart People Radio. I am Robert Bruce, and I am very pleased to have Stephen Pressfield on the line today. For many writers out there, Stephen needs absolutely no introduction. Uh, He's the author of 11 books, including The Legend of Bagger Vance, Killing Rommel, and The War of Art. This episode, my friends, is going to be all about writing. So kick back, grab a coffee, and soak it in from one of the best out there working right now. Stephen Pressfield, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we get into the questions here, Stephen, I want to remind listeners that this show is brought to you by Internet Marketing for Smart People, which is the premier online marketing course delivered straight to your email inbox. It's the very best of Copyblogger wrapped up into 20 perfectly readable emails dripped out to you about once a week. When you sign up for this course, you're getting the nearly six years of Copyblogger content totally free and without having to go back and pick through almost 2,000 articles in the archive. If you want in, it's easy. Head over to copyblogger.com, scroll down to about the middle of the homepage where you'll see the headline, Grab Our Free 20-Part Internet Marketing Course. Drop your email address into the little box there, and we will take care of the rest. So, Stephen, the story of your work as a writer is a fascinating one, and um, I'm wondering if you can give us a brief rundown of your early years at work. You know, when you were trying to get it done in uh, the face of a lot of challenges, um, if, we're, if we're honest, right up until things started moving for you career-wise. Uh, well, it's a grisly story, Robert, but I'll be glad to share it with you. I actually, I, I started off as a copywriter, and um, I worked in New York City uh, for Gray Advertising and for Benton and Bowles and for Ted Bates back uh, wow. you know, in the era, kind of just after Mad Men. What, uh, I, I had no ambitions to be a writer at that time. In fact, I thought advertising was a cool thing. I just kind of wanted to do that. And then I had a boss, a guy named Ed Hannibal, who um, uh, quit uh, his job and wrote a novel. And the novel was a big success. So I thought to myself at, you know, 23, I said, well, shit, why don't I do that too? (laughs) So so I quit and decided to write a novel. I was married at the time. And um, that was just like... uh, the idea of trying to write a novel for me at that time was like so over my head in terms of um, I had no concept of self-discipline, self-motivation, self-reinforcement, self-validation. I, I had none of the skills. And so I sort of crashed and burned. Uh, marriage broke up and I wound up kind of uh, – this was like in the, at the end of the 60s. I wound up kind of on the road traveling all around the country working crazy jobs i was a i was a truck driver i was a school teacher i worked in a mental hospital i picked fruit in washington state i was worked in the oil fields in um, louisiana and um, i was just totally sort of running away from from writing as anybody that's read the war of art kind of knows a little bit of that story and um, at, at some point um, after, I don't know, five or six years, I just had a, a moment, a kind of a come-to-Jesus moment, where I just decided that um, if I was going to continue living the way I was living, I was going to wind up, you know, dead. And that I, I just had to kind of face what I'd been running away from all that time. So I just I, I finally sort of sat down and, and tried started to write. I sort of turned pro in my mind, even though I was... Uh, Making no money at the time, I was I was working as a bartender and driving a taxi um, in New York City, 
And, um, but I, I sort of, I got, I started back to, um, to really trying to work, to write books. I did that also, again, working in advertising part of the time, um, and wrote two, two novels there over like a course of about four and a half years or so. And they were both terrible. Nobody wanted them. I couldn't get them published. You know, it was a total failure. And um, I hope I'm not boring you with this. Not stuff. at all. I'm not at all. Lathering on here. When the second one kind of crashed and burned, I uh, it was either I had one of two choices. Either I was going to hang myself mm. or I was going to come up with some other thing to do. So at that point, I decided to move to Hollywood and try to try to see if I could do something as a screenwriter. So um, I, I went out there and uh, after about five years, I finally sort of got a, a, a kind of a C-level, C-list career going. And that was the first time that um, I ever actually made money as a writer. Mm-hmm. After I think it was like 17 years or even more, the, more than that of trying. And the only reason that I was making money was I got teamed up by my agent with a, an older established writer. And I just kind of became his slave. And he was the guy that brought in the work. And, and uh, I did most of it. Mm. But at least uh, I was working then. And uh, after about 10 years of that, I had the idea for a book, finally. And that was uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance. And that sort of got me onto books. And that was like 1995. And, you know, since then, I've been, you know, my head's been above water and I've been working steadily. Uh, so that's that's the long, uh, grisly saga. So we're talking, if my math is right, 27 years of struggle to get to a place where you were feeling, you know, pretty good, maybe paying the bills, starting to take care of that's things. That's about right, Robert. I think that's about right. Although I think I got my first check after 17 years. Yeah, right. Which right. was an option for 3500 bucks for a screenplay that I wrote, but I didn't start making a living for another 10 years after that. Well, I want to be clear too. We're talking about fiction and, and more on the creative things, but this obviously applies, as you say, in The War of Art and other places. Your, your latest book, Do the Work, um, this struggle applies to all kinds of writing and all kinds of endeavor across the board, right? I, I certainly think so. I mean, I wish that people didn't have to spend as many years as I did, but certainly it seems like anything that um, where you're following your dream or, and, and you're trying to get it to make it in a career that a lot of other people want to make it in, like you want to have a band and you want a rock and roll band or something like that, or, um, or you want to make movies where there's a tremendous amount of competition, it, it seems to take a long time and you have to pay a lot of dues. Yeah. In fact, in the screenwriting world, I would say it's kind of a commonplace axiom. And of course, there are exceptions to this, but it takes like maybe eight or nine years for somebody from the time they come, if they're going to succeed from the time they arrive in, in Tinseltown to when they kind of start making money. Those, yeah. who, those who stick it out and many, of course, don't. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit later uh, in this uh, in this chat about sticking it out. And uh, one of the things that really I love about your work in general is this warrior ethos that runs through most of it, if, if not all of your work. And uh, you're a warrior yourself, a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. And I identify heavily with this kind of warrior stance toward life and work and writing in particular. How can we better bring this warrior ethos to our desk every day? 
No, that's a, that's a really good question, Robert. And I, I mean, in the war of art, I talk about the difference between an amateur and a professional. And um, that what we sort of need to do as writers or artists or entrepreneurs is turn pro mentally and uh, take ourselves seriously, take our work seriously and really kind of bear down on it. And, and the warrior ethos is sort of a, a parallel to that. It's kind of the same thing in my mind. I mean, my experience, at least, as far as um, facing the blank page and all that sort of stuff as a writer, is that you're very much fighting an enemy. And the enemy is resistance, it's self-sabotage, it's procrastination, it's laziness, it's over-perfectionism, self-doubt, all of those things that we generate inside ourselves mm. to keep us from doing our work. So in my mind, I absolutely have a kind of a list of sort of warrior virtues and professional virtues that I try to um, hold up as a model for myself and uh, f- and to follow <clears throat> those virtues, you know, patience, um, uh, courage in the face of adversity, uh, compassion for myself, that sort of stuff. And uh, it's very conscious in my mind every day, every morning when I wake up and I, you know, mm. face resistance. Mm. I sort of marshal those warrior virtues and um, and and enlist them to help me. Um, get my work done. So all these years later, it's not like you're just popping out of bed, Stephen, and you know, uh, you just fill pages. It's no problem. Then you go out to the the garden in the afternoon and sip on a mint julep or something. It's not, that's not your <laughs> life right now. No, in fact, uh, I mean, I've never found anybody to have that, uh, you know, experience, Robert. It's like, you know, the dragon has to be faced every morning and uh, mm. slain every morning. It never gets any easier. In fact, I think in many ways it gets harder because, um, you're always trying to elevate your level of aspiration. Yeah. And so you're always kind of pushing into new areas. But, but so that becomes harder. Now, what makes it easier, I think, over time is that you've had successes in the past. And so you know that you can defeat it. It's very tough at the start. And for any of your listeners that are at the start, I, I, I remember those years vividly. Um, it's tough because you, you haven't had any success at that point. You can't say, you know, we've already won the Super Bowl once, you know. Mm. So, um, uh, but uh, that, that warrior ethos, that kind of professional mindset is, to me, the key to, uh, to um, being able to do the work. Yeah. What do you have to say about uh, the pursuit of fame and wealth in a writer's career? You know what? Uh, let me go back. Let me. Let, let, we'll get. We'll get to that in a second, Robert. But yeah. let me go back I'll, I, and uh, I'll give you a kind of a further answer about the professional mindset and stuff like this. Please. There's a. This actually was on my blog. I ran a chapter uh, from Roseanne Cash, the singer. Yeah. Her book called "Composed," which is kind of a memoir of her life, and um, it uh, uh, it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. It's about her life as a musician and learning how to be a musician. But there was a part in it that I think this really was professionalism to the max to me. Um, it was a, she had a dream that changed her life. And in the dream, this was, I'm not sure how many years ago this was, it was at least 20 years ago. She had an album at that time called uh, King's Record Shop that actually had four number one singles came out of that album. So she was doing great. She had a real career and, uh, 
um, making money and, and having hits. And one night she had this dream. And in the dream, she was at a party and she was sitting on a sofa. And there was her, uh, an older man in the middle who was kind of like, his name was Art. This is very important. A-R-T, capital A-R-T. Yeah. A mentor type guy. And on the other side of Art was Linda Ronstadt. And Linda Ronstadt was sort of a role model to Roseanne and Roseanne because they're, you know, they're kind of in the same ballpark as singers, you know. And Roseanne was sort of competing in her mind a little bit with Linda Ronstadt. And Linda Ronstadt that, at that time had had, you know, really mega hits, um, pacing down the wind and heart like a wheel and a lot of great stuff. Anyway, in the dream, Art was talking animatedly to Linda Ronstadt and was totally ignoring Roseanne. And finally, Roseanne sort of broke in, trying to break into the, to the uh, conversation. And Art turned to her and with a withering glance, you know, looked her right in the eye and said, we don't waste our time with dilettantes. And Roseanne said she woke up and she was shattered by this dream. And, you know, and she felt like she had absolutely been exposed in her own, in her, in, and she realized at that time that she had thought that she was really operating at a pretty good level of professionalism, and she just realized that she really wasn't, that she really was not as good a musician as she wanted to be. She didn't know enough about the craft. She didn't respect the craft enough. Mm. So from that moment, she sort of committed herself, and she started studying. She studied you know, everything more seriously, the piano, vocal coach, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yep. And it changed her life. She really kind of elevated her game to a whole other level. And the sort of final kind of ironic kicker of the whole thing is that the vocal coach that she wound up working with that really helped her tremendously was also Linda Ronstadt's vocal coach, and she she didn't know it when she <laughs> went to work with her. So that's um, another story of of a moment of of turning pro, of um, having a, a a kind of an epiphany where you're sort of exposed and you say, oh, "Man, I am not what I thought I was, and I better I better gear up and, and take it to the next level." So. And we oh, know that, I wanted to put deep, that in. Yo, I love that. I love that story. I'd, I'd never heard that. And it, it makes me think how you talk a bit about guilt throughout um, a lot of your writing in The War of Art. And there is a deep understanding. We know when we're just screwing around, right? We know when we're not in the game truly, when we're at some deep level just playing the dilettante. Right. And how we answer that is what makes all the difference. Exactly. That's what that story is all about. And the name of the book is Composed. It's putting in a little plug here for Roseanne. It's a great book. You say a lot about the pursuit of fame and wealth. I don't want to give away your, your punchline here, but you, um, there's a chapter in The War of Art where you talk specifically about the pursuit of these things over the pursuit of the craft. And you don't pull any punches. What do you think about this pursuit of fame and wealth in the craft of writing? That's another really good question. I think it's, it's absolutely natural, I think, when you're starting out to have dreams of fame and wealth and women and, you know, all of this sort of stuff, right? But I think that uh, as you get into any craft, I don't care what it is, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a potter, if you're a weaver, if you're a writer, that craft is going to start kicking your ass. And pretty soon you're going to realize that um, the pursuit of fame and wealth and other of those things are totally superficial and that they're not doing you any good and um, that 
you're they're they're really sort of peripheral to the um, to the pursuit. And I think as the more you get into um, a craft or an art or and the more seriously you take it, the more spiritual it becomes in a way. Mm-hmm. And you you realize that. You know, there was a famous quote from Chrissy Evert that she said, when you win Wimbledon, the thrill lasts about an hour. Mm. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Wow. When you do get the money or you do get the fame or you do get the women or whatever it is that you're looking for, it's it's proves to be empty very fast. Yeah. And it kind of throws you back. And you, at some point, you, you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? You know, what was the dream originally? And in the end, I think you have to sort of come down to the fact that it's, it's the, it's the work itself. It's the, it's the pursuit of the work. And, uh, I, I have also found that when I'm trying to decide about uh, a potential screenplay to write, and I'd ask my, I'd have an idea and I'd say, should I do this or should I do this other idea? Every time I would try to pick what I thought was commercial, what I thought was going to work in the marketplace, it never worked. Hmm. And when, and when I picked something that I just loved, even though I thought it was crazy and nobody else would be interested in it, those are the those are the ones that have worked for me. It's certainly something. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wealth and fame, but I think if that's if that's your pursuit, if that's what you're really after, uh, you're in trouble and you're gonna and you're riding for a fall. Well, to add on to this question of why are we pursuing this? Why uh, you tell a story of uh, Krishna instructing a student that we have the right to our labor but not to the fruits of our labor. And this could probably sound blasphemous to many people, but it certainly seems very poignant today. Like in an age of seemingly instant returns online and with social networking and with blogging and with all of these things, we seem to be able to get feedback and even uh, recognition and sometimes rewards relatively quickly, or we have the desire for those things. What can we apply from uh, Krishna's teaching to our work as writers? Well, that teaching comes from a book called the Bhagavad Gita, which is um, sort of like, I hate to use this phrase, but it's a shorthand verse, kind of like the Hindu Bible. Sure. And in the, um, it's a book that Gandhi used, the principles from it, to free India. It's a great book. I, I, I read it, you know, every year. It's very short. The Bhagavad Gita, I can't recommend it highly enough. And uh, the book is about the great warrior Arjuna, and actually, uh, my book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, is just a complete ripoff of this book. I just <laughs> totally stole the structure and just changed it. Artist steel warrior, um, great warrior Arjuna, who receives spiritual instruction from his charioteer, and his charioteer happens to be Krishna. In other words, God in human form. But one of the things that that Krishna instructs Arjuna is, as you said, Robert, is that we have the right to our labor, but not to the fruits of our labor. And that's kind of a hard concept to grasp. But what? But it's absolutely true when you get down to the soul level of life and how it works. If Again, it's back to what your, your question about wealth and fame. If we're pursuing any enterprise for the for the material benefits, the material profits at the end, we're setting ourselves up for disaster because although we may get the fruits, a lot of the time we won't. And even more to the point, we may get the fruits and they may be the worst thing that ever happened to us. I mean, how many 
guys, actors and actresses, have won an Oscar only to watch their career go straight into the toilet, mm. you know, as they get into, you know, drugs and all kinds of other stuff after that. So what Krishna is saying is really that we need to focus on the craft itself. Mm. I like to liken it to a, like a martial arts practice. If you're, you know, uh, a swords master or, uh, yeah. or a meditator or yoga, yogi or something like that, that there's no goal, there's no finish line, there's no prize that gets put in your hand at the end. You have to ask yourself, am I getting something out of this just today as I'm doing it in the studio, as I'm practicing yoga, as I'm practicing martial arts, as I'm writing, as I'm making a film? Am I, am I, is this fun for me now just making this movie? And if the answer is yes, then you don't have to worry about anything else. If you're only doing it because for the babes or the money, then, you know, that sort of, it just runs counter to the way life works. You know, life will, um, the floor will drop out from under you if that's your orientation. Do you think this applies to business as well? You've been a copywriter, you've been in advertising, and you are, you know, running your own business now as we speak um, through various avenues of your writing and as things pan out for you. Do you think this applies? Obviously, we're in business uh, to profit, but it's much more than that, right? I mean, we're not talking about... In my opinion, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, there's, there's two ways of being in business. I mean, for me, being a copywriter was not my calling. Sure. For me, being a copywriter was running away from the real writing that I really meant to do. I was one of those guys that had a novel in his drawer in his desk or had a screenplay in his drawer in his desk and was, and was doing copywriting because it paid the bills. Um, but there are... Lots of people who have their own businesses and, and are, you know, um, for whom their business is their calling. And in that case, then the same rules apply as I just was talking about, about, you yep. know, being a pro, being an amateur, the warrior ethos and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So um, definitely, uh, you know, I'm thinking of a few friends of mine who have businesses that uh, for me might not be what I would want to do. But for them, it's, it's their thing. They're on the right path. So, um, yeah, I like that. So all these principles apply, I'd say. I don't know if you, how, how much deeper you want to go into this, but I'm fascinated by your distinction between the amateur writer, which you call the amateur writer and the professional writer. Are there any points you want to pull out of, uh, that distinction? Oh, uh, there's a, actually, there's a lot. In fact, uh, what I'm is, yeah. What is an amateur writer right now? That's exactly on that subject. But, um, you know, going back to that story I told about Roseanne Cash's dream mm -hmm. and how um, she realized in that dream when Arch turned to her and said, we don't waste our time talking to dilettantes. She realized that she was she was dabbling. She was she was she was a successful professional, but she was at a she she was not at a high enough professional level. In essence, she was an amateur. Yeah. And um I believe this is this is my whole sort of life is based on this. Like I say in the War of Art, I can I can split my life in half as before I turn pro and after I turn pro, yeah. and they're completely different lives. It's like the same uh, parallel would be a, a drunk while he was drinking, and then when he became a uh, you know what do they call him a reformed alcoholic or yeah. a, whatever that is. Yeah, um, everything changes. When you take yourself seriously enough and you take the craft that you're after seriously enough, 
to really treat it as your calling and not as something that you're just dicking around in or that you're, um, and again, it kind of comes back to resistance with a capital R. I think the reason that most people are amateurs in their heads in whatever craft that they're working on is because resistance is defeating them and they're, they're, they're afraid to really make the commitment. So they're sort of hanging around in the shallow end of the pool. And um, if, if this, if I think, at least in my experience, if you do have a calling to some art, then at some point you're going to have to go into the deep end. Hmm. Otherwise, um, you know, you'll, you'll develop a tumor or something like that. I'm not joking when I say that. No, I've heard you, I've heard you talk about that before illness and obviously even more, uh, you know, depression and all kinds of problems coming from essentially, uh, you know, not doing what you should be doing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's dark territory. That's very dark territory. Okay. Can you give us two specific ways uh, for those out there struggling with this? What are two ways we can turn pro? You know, you, I'll say this. Usually it's, it's you know, that we're dealing with capital R resistance in a case like this. And resistance is in my experience, monumental. I mean, it will kill you. It will absolutely kill you. And it's trying to kill you. So to reach the moment where you do turn pro usually takes, you know, an absolutely traumatic epiphany. You know, you, it's, if, if we go back to the analogy of the, of the alcoholic, you almost have to wake up in a gutter having sold your children into white slavery, you know, mm, yeah. before it finally hits you. But it doesn't hurt to think about it ahead of time and to really sort of look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, am I, am I just fooling around or am I really committed? And the good thing about turning pro is it's free. Hmm. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to get a certificate. Nobody has to validate you. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. Nobody has to know about it. It's only a, a, a change of attitude internally in your mind. That's all, that's all it is. But of course, to say that's all it is, it's a huge thing to get to that point. Right, right. But um, let's, let's move on to um, this great story. It's one of, one of my favorites of yours of uh, the glorious moment you completed your first manuscript while living and working in Big Sur. This was a time of intense creativity and intense struggle. Um, you, you tell it so well, but upon completion of this manuscript, you ran it over to your neighbor at the time, a gentleman named Paul Rink, a guy who actually has his own place secured in American literary history. But you told him you'd finished and you were excited and you were proud uh, you know, of, of this accomplishment. And he said something to you that stuck with me ever since I read it years ago. What was the exchange and why is it so important for writers? It, it actually wasn't in, in Big Sur. It wasn't in Big Sur, but uh, it was near there. But Paul, actually, Paul Rink, if you read Henry Miller's book, Big Sur and the Oranges of Hieronymus Bosch, he's, yep. he's in there. He was, he was kind of one of those denizens of Big Sur in those days. But this, this happened actually in a nearby town. And Paul was kind of uh, my mentor. He was, um, I don't know, 30 years older than me and had been a writer forever. And uh, he lived in a little camper. You know, and um, every morning I would come down and have coffee with him and he would kind of psych me up and, and give me, you know, as <laughs> writing mentors do, you know, he'd give me books to read and that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
So finally, I, I, finish, I finished this book that, you know, I've been, this was like monumental to me. I've been running away for about 10 years from this and finally did it. And I came over and, and said, uh, you know, told him, Paul, I finished the book. And he, he didn't even look up, you know, he just said to me, good for you. Now start the next one. And I thought that was absolutely, that's a real, that's a professional attitude to the max. And I think it's, there's tremendous wisdom in that which is that I heard another story once. It was somebody was talking about, it was an actor trying to make it in Hollywood. And uh, he was talking to Walter Matthau somewhere at a party or something. Hmm. And he said to Walter Matthau, I'm just looking for that break. I just got to get that break. Hmm. Matthau started laughing and he said, kid, it's not that break. It's those 50 breaks. Hmm. And what he meant was that one job, one book, one movie, that's absolutely nothing. You know, the if if you're a pro, if you're a pro, you finish one and you go immediately on to the next one because what you are, it's like a singer lives to sing. It almost doesn't matter what the song is. You're there to sing, so you finish one song and you go on to the next song. Hmm. And not to get off the, uh, this is sort of on the subject, uh, a little bit off the subject, but sometimes you know I've written, I'll write it like. Uh, the Legend of Bagger Vance or another book of mine, Gates of Fire, are about specific subjects. Like one is about golf and one is about the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. And people who have read them will write me letters or emails and want to know, uh, you know, they want to get into that subject, right? You know, what was what was uh, warfare like in the Greek world in, you know, 480 yeah. BC? And, and it's, it's, it's odd, but it's like once I'm done with that, I don't care. Mm. In other words, I'm I'm done with that. I I was I'm a writer. I wrote that book. It's over. Mm. I'm going on to the next thing, and I don't care about that subject anymore. I mean, I may think about it fondly in memory, like you think about an old girlfriend or something like that. But it it was just what I was doing then. And the bottom line of the career is that we're following our craft. And if you think about like all the albums, let's say, that Neil Young has done over his career, you can see that there's there's a, a trajectory. And he's always Neil Young. He's always pursuing that muse. It's just the album is a different one. You know, one time it's everybody knows this is nowhere, and the next time it's, you know, Harvest. So I'm not sure that makes sense, but... Uh, no, it makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm not even going to touch it because I want that one to just sit and resonate. Last question for you. Uh, you've built this great site over at stephenpressfieldonline.com. You're on Twitter, pretty active with Twitter. Uh, do you have any thoughts on your use of social media, both in the last couple of years and, and kind of going forward? How has it affected your work and, and how has it affected your audience, if at well, all? I'm really, actually, I have a, a publicist named Callie Ottinger. And she, whatever happens on Twitter, she is, that's her. Um, <laughs> but the one thing that I do, so I really don't mess around with social media. Okay. And, I, and I very deliberately don't. I'll just kind of answer questions or stuff like that or respond to emails. But I try to stay away from that, except for, because it's a, it's distracting, except for the website. And what I've done there is I, uh, every Wednesday, I kind of write like a continuing chapter in the war of art um it's called writing wednesdays it actually was callie's idea my publicist and that has been great it's been very helpful to me and it's it's helped to sort of 
it's created a, a little community of people that kind of follow it. And uh, to my amazement, what's been good for me is it's, it's helped me move from being just a writer alone in his room doing his work to sort of embracing, now that I'm an old guy, the, <laughs> the idea that I, I can be a mentor to people and I can help people a little bit. And that was kind of a big step for me to, to do that. And uh, to my amazement and my great uh, gratification, there's a, a little community is formed around this site. And it's, it's really a great community. I'm amazed at the level of the people that are, uh, you know, when people sometimes there'll be like, you know, 20 or 30 comments after a post and uh, they'll be uniformly, amazingly intelligent and a very, really, really interesting. Um, bringing in things, citing uh, other other writers, other works that I've never heard of. and um, But I'm definitely opposed overall to social media, as, as I think that they're mostly distractions and uh, resistance loves social media. The resistance, uh, it's the greatest invention resistance has ever seen. <laughs> You yeah, can waste and, your life on yeah. Facebook and Twitter, can't you? Yeah. And I find it interesting that you're, yes, yes, uh, the distraction potential there is omnipresent. Do you, but you're bringing it home to your own site, to your own domain, to your own comments and your own posts. And you're right. I do love your writing Wednesdays. I'm going to link up uh, one of your most recent posts, actually, uh, in the show notes for this show. And I find that interesting. You, you are finding, uh, you're taking, making the time to do that, um, and engage with people there on your own home, pl- uh, home page, not to throw, you know, social media out with the bathwater, but I take your point, uh, very seriously about the potential for distraction on social networking sites. Uh, there's, there's no doubt there. You know, there's, there's, here's, here's kind of the distinction. If I can think of it, if I can put this right, Robert, yeah. um, you know, after having written the war of art and do the work, I get a lot of requests from people that want me to come speak, you know, at whatever, you know, their conference of artists or whatever it is. And, uh, I never do it. I always turn them down Hmm. because I'm, I'm not, that's not my business. Hmm. You know what I mean? I'm not pitching a method or a product. The only reason I'm, I'm doing this interview today is out of respect for for you, for you and for copy blogger. But I'm really, I really try to do as few of these things as I possibly can. Because it's like the reason I wrote the book. That's why I wrote the book. It's like here's the book, you know. Yeah. Uh, that makes I, it yeah. In a sense, you, you don't be on guard against things that are distracting you from what you're really trying to do. So the takeaway here is you have uh, in your code of working made very very specific decisions about how you're going to spend your time uh, and the working hours of your life, and you're sticking to that. Yeah, even even at some people would would say, well, you're missing out on so much, Stephen, on so much publicity and so many potential opportunities for this or that. Um, you've made this decision, and you're sticking with it, uh, come what may. Well, you know that's that's very much to the point, Robert. I'm I'm sure that I am missing out on a lot, you know. And uh, if I had some wise business manager, they'd probably kick me in the ass, you know. <laughs> but I've made that decision that that's not important to me. Hmm. What's important to me, just like we were talking about before about Krishna and Arjuna, what's important to me is is the work that I'm trying to do yep. and getting to the next level in that. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad to do uh, some of this kind of stuff, but uh, but it's it's not my day job. 
I'm with you on that. And on that note, uh, let's get you out of here. I do appreciate your time, Stephen. Uh, if, if people want more of you, where can they find you on the web? Uh, it's just uh, my name, stephenpressfield.com, Stephen with a V. Or they can just Google that and it'll come up. And uh, best to Brian and, uh, you know, I salute what you guys are doing. Great stuff. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, as always, if this show has done something to you or for you, we'd love it if you got over to iTunes and left a comment or rating there. Mr. Pressfield, you are the real deal, a true professional, and I thank you for coming by today. Thanks, Robert. The same to you. One, two, three. <laughs>